Well, I'm excited for today because today you are going to be learning a lot. And you are a church that loves to learn a lot, right? You love to learn the Bible because you not only want knowledge, but you want knowledge that you can apply. And I think today will hopefully help with that. It might be a teaching you need to listen to once or twice over because I'm going to give you a lot of information on a topic that quite often I don't, I don't hear a lot about in uh, the Christian realm, which is spiritual warfare, uh, in the way I'm going to teach it today. And so um, I'm really excited about that. But last week I talked a little bit about my um, past and, and uh, what happened to me on September 11th. And randomly this week, I totally spaced that it was September 11th. I just totally forgot. And we were sitting there as a family and talking, and Kelly and I started talking with our kids about the subject of the fact that it was the 17th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. And as we talked, our kids asked us more and more questions because in the minds of two seven-year-olds and and a four-year-old, who can fathom what happened on that day? And as we processed the grief and the trauma together, my children, in utter shock, began to tear up, right? They began to tear up and become extremely sad. And they asked the simple question, why did those men do that? Why did they do that? Now, my only answer was, well, because Satan came to lie and kill and steal and destroy, and he often uses humans to do that work. Their shock and their horror and disbelief at the presence of sheer evil is one that we should emulate. And I think, unfortunately, because we're constantly surrounded by media and separated from violence, we have become numb to the fact that there is sheer evil in our world, and it is actually in a state that is unprecedented. But what also stuck out to me from that moment was we needed to show them what it was because they couldn't fathom it. And so we pulled up YouTube and showed them a few different um, images and, and video of the planes flying into the towers. And what Kelly pointed out to me that really stuck with me was that even after the second plane flew into the South Tower, we were listening to the national newscasters on that uh, recorded video, and they could not fathom what had occurred. They kept saying things like, well, maybe, maybe the air control towers are off and maybe this was an accident and something's broken, the technology. And they had all these reasons, but no one could say terror attack. Now, why was that? Well, it was because it was totally out of the blue to us. I don't know if any of you remember back that far, 17 years ago, but that was not something that was in our mind. Nothing like that had ever happened before and we couldn't wrap our minds around it. And yet there it was Plain as day, sheer evil. In our postmodern world, we exist in a constant disassociation from the reality that evil exists. And its desire is to destroy all that is good and right in God's world. Evil and the spiritual forces that the Bible says are behind it don't seem to fit into our nice little scientific postmodern post-enlightenment boxes. And so without actually working through it, we just cast it aside most often. We think, is evil from God? Is evil from man? Who's the source? And we try and wrap our minds around it, but we don't actually understand where it comes from. But to the writers of the Bible, as we'll see today, they never had these conundrums. They knew where evil came from. Just as righteousness had a source in the creator of all things, evil had its source in those that rebelled against God and his truth. And this rebellion has at its head spiritual forces opposed to God, primarily the one known in Hebrew as Hasatan, the adversary, or Diabolos in the Greek, the accuser. Now, I know this sounds like mythology and superstition to many. We're going to be talking about boogeymen today, Hans, you might say. But what I am going to do with you today is take you through the Word of God to let you see what it says about spiritual evil because I fear that many of us as Christians, we gloss over much of what the Bible says and miss a very important and crucial piece of why the cross of Calvary is so powerful and so good. So I want to explain that to us today. And in doing so, we're going to see that Paul has been building up this letter to the church at Ephesus and the surrounding churches in a way where his statement about spiritual warfare is actually the culmination. It's to cap off the letter as a call to action. It is not a parenthetical add-on to just mention the idea of spiritual warfare, but it's the culmination of everything he has been speaking to. And we'll see that at the heart of this book is the idea of spiritual warfare. 
So let's take a look there at Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, and read our text for today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the accuser. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. He begins with this word finally. In the Greek, it's from now on. It's saying at this point, you need to recognize what you're doing from here on out. And because this topic of spiritual warfare is one that's often dismissed in the minds of many uh, post-enlightenment Christians, we have to take and stop for a second and ask, what is the background of what Paul's saying here? So I'm going to take probably two-thirds of my teaching time today, and I'm going to go through the biblical theology of evil that sits in the Bible. I think many of us know that it's there, but we don't know it in detail. And so we're going to start not with verse 10 and break that down, but we're going to start with verse 12. And we're going to look at this idea of spiritual warfare, and then we're going to go through the two commands that he gives surrounding verse 12. And so the first thing that we're going to look at today is this. Write this down. We are entangled in a cosmic war between two kingdoms. We are entangled in a cosmic war between two kingdoms. Now, right off the bat, I know many of you might think, oh man, come on, Hans, right? Let's not talk about superstition here. But guys, right now, at this moment, do you realize that we are at war as a nation? We have been since September 11, 2001. How often does that play into your daily thought life? How often do you remember that there are men and women dying on our behalf in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places? We often just go about our business and forget about it, but here's my point. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so just because we can't see much of what we're going to talk about today does not mean that the warfare is occurring. It's just in a different realm, much like Afghanistan is separated from the United States. We're entangled in a cosmic war between two kingdoms. For the last chapter and a half, Paul's been walking through how becoming followers of Jesus should cause us to change our relationships. Very practical information. And to many contemporary readers, that seems to abruptly come to a stop here at verse 10, and he takes a total left turn into this idea of spiritual warfare, right? You know, love your husbands, love your wives, right? Oh, let's talk about spiritual warfare. But the reality is, is that he's actually building up. It seems that this is not a secondary point at all, but Paul is simply moving his view from earthly relationships to what our relationships should be in the spiritual realm. And within Christianity, I found a spectrum of beliefs in my time as a Christian when it comes to the spiritual realm. On one side of the spectrum, you have spiritual dismissal. Yes, God is real, but let's not talk about all the ghouls and goblins and demons and all that other stuff. And then on the other side, there are those who have kind of a hyper-spiritual Christianity that almost seems to resemble more pagan animism than it does Christianity because you find a demon in every backache, every broken nail, every popped tire, Everything is from Satan. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so we see this spectrum. It seems that when we read the Bible, though, the truth is far more dramatic and far more weighty, and yet far different than what many believers profess with their words in life. Now let's first look at the biblical theology of God at war and then zoom in on Paul's development of the same thought here in Ephesians. Does that sound like a plan? We'll look at the big picture and then we'll zoom into Ephesians. Everybody good with that? Let's start with Psalm 74, randomly. Let's just turn to Psalm 74 in the middle of the Bible here. And let's take a look at this. This is an example of the warfare mindset. And the reason I bring you to this is because this is a psalm that I know that I and many other people that have read it will read through and they'll go, yeah, I kind of get it, I kind of don't, I'm going to move on. But let's read the first eight verses and then we'll kind of break it down from there. Psalm 74, verse 1. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. That sounds like kind of Christian terminology, doesn't it? Congregation, redemption, purchased. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. 
Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. The accepted historical background here, if you'll pause with me for a second, is that Babylon had sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And the psalmist is asking Yahweh, in essence, how there can be any public worship if Yahweh allowed the enemies of Babylon to come in and destroy them. We're thinking so far totally in the physical realm, are we not? We're looking at it, and God is going, wait a minute. Or the people are looking at God and saying, wait a minute, why are you letting our enemies attack us? Well, look at verse 9. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. He's crying out for God to act. Now, step forward to verse 18 with me and take a look here at this section. Remember this, O Yahweh, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God. Defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Now we read this and we think, okay, I get it. He's saying, why haven't you fought Babylon? Why haven't you destroyed those people who are obviously against you? But then we have this very weird section starting in verse 12. Take a look there. This is the psalmist trying to give himself courage in the midst of this. He says, yet God, my king is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Guys, this is long before Jesus showed up. And then he says, you, God, divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. What? Anybody else's record just stop right there? Sea monsters? What, are we hanging out in Britain looking for a Loch Ness monster here? What's going on? You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures over the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. He's pleading with God Almighty to act on their behalf, but in the midst of his pleas, the author remembers who Yahweh is. He's the creator, the one and only, who has fixed the places of the created world. And what does he reference to speak of the strength and the victory of this God? Well, right there on verse 13, you divided the sea by your might. Okay, Bible scholars, where does your mind immediately go when you think of the sea, the ocean, split? Exodus, Exodus, right? Exodus is opened up for the Israelites to go through. But then he talks about these random sea monsters and Leviathan. And how did he crush their heads and why? Well, guys, let's think of the Exodus for a second. Let's go there. Think about this with me. This is from Exodus 12, 12. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, speaking of the last uh, curse that comes across the, uh, uh, Egypt, um, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And we think, great, I know that story. But then he says, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Yahweh was telling Moses this last plague where he was going to kill the firstborn males of Egypt of anyone in the land who didn't have the Passover lamb's blood on their doorpost. And in each of the plagues of Egypt, before that and that one, we must understand that Yahweh wasn't just doing party tricks. The great I am was declaring the impotence of the false gods of Egypt. The God of the Nile. When the Nile was turned to blood, he said, you're powerless. The God of the sun, when the sun was turned to darkness, he said, you're powerless. The God Heket, who had a head like a frog, when the plague of frogs came, he said, you're powerless. All of these were rendered impotent by Yahweh's plagues. And in doing so, he was declaring an evangelistic message to everyone around 
that the God of salvation and redemption and life was Yahweh and not any other God. He was crying out to all who heard that they should follow him as king and not false spiritual deities. What you see is this biblical principle that heaven and earth, while separated due to sin, still operate in conjunction with one another from a warfare perspective. God is waging war in the heavenlies on our behalf, and we down here are seeing the effects of it and operating within that same war. God was at war against the demonic spirits behind these pagan gods. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church, he says, behind the idols are false gods. They're demonic spirits. Now, these are not real in the sense that they're gods at the level of our creator God. But these are real entities in that they're demonic spirits who are fallen angels who have fought and rebelled against Yahweh, the creator God. Now, going back to Psalm 74, we see three characters here. The sea, the sea monsters, and the Leviathan. Each of these, threes, th- each of these three in ancient Canaanite religion were pictures of pagan deities at war with the true and living God. Yam is the name of the sea in Hebrew. Y-A-M is how we'd spell it. Yam. It was also the name of the Canaanite sea god. And so here, when it says he's destroying them or breaking the heads... He is speaking in terms of symbolism. You guys know whenever we watch advertisements and they want to show a burglar, there's a certain type of person they use, right? Kind of big, kind of hunched. He's usually got a hoodie on and, you know, he's got a crowbar, right? If you see that symbol, what do you think? Thief. He's going to break in the house, right? There was a point yesterday where I was walking around with my crowbar at the, the office and had my jacket on and I was thinking, boy, I kind of look like that picture, don't I, right? We use symbols in order to communicate things. Is Satan a sea monster with many heads coming up out of the ocean? No, but in the poetic writing of the Psalms, he's trying to communicate there is an entity behind this evil. And this evil is what will ultimately be destroyed. Look at Isaiah 27, 1 through 2. In that day, speaking of the day that the Lord will ultimately conquer, in that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish... Satan? No. Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. He's talking about the ultimate day of vengeance upon the uh, kingdom of darkness and all those who are spiritual powers within it, as well as all those who give their allegiance to it. Guys, in the biblical mind, this was not a big deal. They understood that this evil was run by evil entities behind it. The parting of the sea in Exodus wasn't just a cool party trick, nor was it just an escape route. It was God saying, I have the power over the sea. Now to the Hebrews, that's huge. Because the sea was the place of ultimate chaos. It was the place out of which evil came. Now, this quickly explains a lot of Scripture if we can understand that God is the God of order, bringing order and peace to the chaos that reigns from rebellion. Many of the apocalyptic writings that, again, we gloss over, they make a lot more sense if we understand this background. Look at this random prophecy. This is from Ezekiel 29, if you want to write it down. Ezekiel 29, 1 through 6, so you can go look at it later. Ezekiel 29, 1 through 6, it's a random prophecy that's speaking against Egypt, but look at what he says. In the tenth year, in the tenth month of the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, earthly kingdom, okay? And prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Great, earthly kingdom. The great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams. Wait a minute, what? This dragon that says, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws, God says, and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh says, because you have been a staff of read to the house of Israel. Now, if you read that without this mindset 
in the background of the fact that there is an evil entity, a spiritual demonic entity behind the kingdoms of the earth that are fighting against God. This makes no sense. You're like, what is he talking about? The author intertwines the spiritual entity of the dragon and the earthly kingdom of Egypt that raises itself against the ultimate authority of Yahweh. Earthly kingdoms seem biblically connected always to spiritual darkness. And I want to be clear here. All earthly kingdoms, not just those we don't like, all earthly kingdoms have behind them a spiritual realm. This helps us understand the imagery of Revelation when John, a Hebrew, writes that the beast of the worldly kingdoms will come from the sea. Revelation 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems, those are crowns, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Now, I would love to be able to take a left turn and go into Revelation and explain all this to you guys. But here's the reality. Revelation was a book written to the first century church, and Revelation was not just about what would happen at the end of days. It was to give them courage from that day on, spiraling through every kingdom that would ever come until the final kingdom that would fight against God in what we know as the War of Armageddon, the final spiritual battle. So we're talking the Romans, we're talking all the kingdoms of the earth, all the way through. Because kingdoms of the earth do not want Yahweh, the God of the Bible, to rule over them. It helps us understand these things a lot better. It also helps us understand why three of the four Gospels capture the scene of Jesus calming the sea. You ever wonder why he did that? That's a pretty cool party trick. It shows that he's God, right? Well, in all three of them, this story directly precedes the story of Jesus casting out demonic activity. Go with me to Matthew and take a look there since we're done in Psalm 74. Look at Matthew chapter 8. If you go back to the end of seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 28, and you look down through, notice that the section begins with the statement of Jesus' authority there in 28 and 29 of chapter 7. And then it moves into all these actions that Jesus does. He cleanses a leper. Uh, He heals the servant of a centurion. When the centurion says, no, you're Lord, you have authority. And Jesus heals many. And then randomly, after this story of the storm, you see that he heals two men with demons. He heals a paralytic. He does all of these actions that fight against the effects of sin and brokenness. And in the midst of this is this story of Jesus out on the water. Look at verse 23 there. 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Now we think, why are you afraid of the waves? No, he's saying, why are you afraid of the demonic activity that is trying to kill us? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? The other two gospels record him as saying to the water, peace be still. The literal translation is silence, be muzzled. Silence, be strangled. It's not just calming it. He's destroying it. It wasn't just a cool party trick. It was Jesus showing that he was the one to bring peace to the chaos. And it was directly connected to any Hebrew that knew the book of Genesis. Jesus is God. How do we know this? Well, look at Genesis 1-1 with me. You can turn there in your Bible. What did Genesis 1-1 What we're going to see there is that this war has been going on between Yahweh and the kingdom of darkness from the beginning. Look with me at Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. It's very simple. We all maybe even know it by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Guys, if we read it carefully, here's what we find. The verse verse there tells us that in the beginning, God created to the Hebrew, this is what it, what it would be. What's up there and what's down here? 
It's a statement that God created everything. And the word for created is bara in the Hebrew. It means he created it out of nothing, ex nihilo. Created it out of nothing. Every word from then on out about his creation is actually the word make in the Hebrew. It means he fashioned it out of what was already there. And what happens is we put all of Genesis 1 and 2 into this idea of the creation account when, in fact, the only statement in the Hebrew of God creating something out of nothing is verse 1. That's it. So we have no need to argue about evolution. We have no need to argue about the age of the earth because that's all we know about God creating is verse 1. From there, he then fashioned. But verse 2 is very, very important. I'd submit to you that this from here on out is something that we need to take a look at because there's this odd phrase, without form and void. This wasn't just saying it's a mound of clay that needs to be structured. These words in the Hebrew are tohu vabohu. Everybody say tohu vabohu. Say it again, it's fun. Tohu vabohu. In the Hebrew, what this means is this means something destructive. This phrase is used to describe elsewhere in Scripture, not something that's in the beginning phases of creation, but something that has been laid waste and destroyed. So something happened between verses 1 and 2. How do we know this? Well, look with me at Isaiah 45, 18. And I know many of your heads are spinning right now, but just keep tracking with me, okay? Isaiah 45, 15 says this, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, Notice what it says. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. He did not create it in the Hebrew, tohu. So why on earth does verse 2 say that the earth was created tohu vabohu? Now, folks, I want to be clear. This is not a primary doctrine. This is not a battlefield I will die on. So if you want to argue with me on this point, have at it. I will probably sit there quietly. I don't want to argue with you on this point. This is not something that I'm going to take to the bank and say, this is what makes a Christian, if you believe this. Because whether it's true or not does not alter the saving work of Jesus Christ. But I want you to just think about this. If God created the world full and something happened between 1-1 and 1-2 that caused chaos to ensue and the world to become without form and void, maybe something dealing with warfare between God and the first rebellion was going on, and this could help us explain some things. For example, where did the serpent come from in chapter 3? Anybody ever wonder that? This guy shows up in chapter 3 called the serpent, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought earth was perfect. I thought God created it perfect. Where is this guy coming from? But to the Hebrew, they understood that there was already a diabolical faction in creation that had been at war with God, and so it makes sense that the leader of this cosmic rebellion is pictured as a serpent, the age of chaos, the agent of chaos. The fact that he is pictured as a serpent, right? How many of your kids, when you're explaining the Garden of Eden, this happened to me just a few years ago, hey guys, so Garden of Eden, here you go, the snake shows up. Wait a minute, I thought the devil's a snake? Well, uh, and then parents kind of, hey, look, a squirrel. I don't want to have to explain that one because I don't understand it myself. The reality is, is that the creation account while absolutely true because God created, is written in a literary genre that uses symbolism. And so the ancient serpent, the dragon, the leviathan, the one who is a monster against God, was ready to attack God's creation. Well, not only does it understand, help us to understand where Satan comes from, it also helps us to understand why God would give orders to Adam the way that he did. You ever wonder why God says in Genesis 1.28, you need to subdue the earth? And in 2.15, you need to protect it, the word shamar in the Hebrew, or keep it? Why would he use these words, guys? All throughout Scripture, the word subdue is used as military activity. Why would he use that? I've heard people say, well, he's saying that we're supposed to go hunting and we're supposed to garden and we're supposed to build things. Well, yeah, that's kind of subdue, but guys, subdue is always used in the Old Testament speaking about military action. To the Hebrew authors, there was a cosmic rebellion and battle in the heavenlies that had now come to earth. 
And Adam and Eve were the first people that God said, take my kingdom to bear in this place. Subdue the earth in my name, Yahweh's name, and protect it from the evil one. And this battle plays in the background of all that occurs in this world. To not understand this or to wipe it away is to come up with, the same, with, with some theology that does not work in the rest of Scripture. We have to then start altering things and making things up. Let's take the story of Job, for example. You guys remember the story of Job? Or as I like to say, Job, right? That's what I called him when I didn't know very much about the Bible. Who's this guy, Job? The opening of the story shows two different scenes. The first is on earth where Job is trying to righteously lead his family and a large business enterprise. He's an entrepreneur. And the one in the throne room of God shows a council of divine beings, angelic beings, what we'd refer to as angels, created by the ultimate God, Yahweh. And we see this scene where Hasatan, the adversary of God and of man, comes before God and says that Job is only serving Yahweh because his life is good. So God gives room for Satan to harm Job, I almost said Job, harm Job by taking away his business, his family, his wealth, and his health, but he's not allowed to kill him. Now, if you remember, by the end of chapter 2, Job's three friends, they come and they console him, and they start out doing a good job because they just sit with him in his misery and care for him. But then they begin stating that there must be a reason, and throughout the next 36 chapters, you have this debate from one side to another. First, that the world is ordered perfectly, and so Job must have sinned and called down God's judgment. Then, that there is no order and that the world is chaotic and God has no control. It kind of sounds like the debate in the midst of the church when the topic of evil comes up, doesn't it? But Job cries out in the midst of all of it, basically asking God what the deal is. Are you good and just, or are you all-powerful? Because both can't be true. And the next four chapters are God answering Job, but he never gives him an answer. Most of his statement is, Job, the world is far too complicated for you to understand. And he uses a myriad of animals and their behavior as well as natural phenomenon to describe this. But there are two odd sections in his response. In Job 40 and 41, he mentions two characters, the behemoth and the leviathan. Now, over the years, I have heard these described by well-meaning teachers and pastors as crocodiles, as dinosaurs, as hippos, as rhinos, and everything in between. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you have heard this talk before? Okay. Well, these are just more animals, and that would make sense, and I don't think there's anything wrong with teaching it that way, but this doesn't totally make sense if you look at the descriptions. Go with me to Job 41. Job is before Psalms. And look at Job 41, starting in verse 14. According to Canaanite religion, both of these, the behemoth and the leviathan, were pictures or symbols of pagan powers of evil. They were Canaanite gods. Now look with me at the leviathan, for example, in Job 41, starting in verse 14. Who can open the doors of his face? So we know he's big. Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Okay, guys, here we go. Question and answer time. Is that a rhino? Is that a hippo? Is that a dinosaur? Maybe. We don't really know what dinosaurs But closest thing, what could it be? A dragon. Okay, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I'm out. We're talking about dragons now. First you started with sea monsters, now dragons. We are finding a new church. This place is wacko. All of you who are visiting today, just come back again, right? Please, okay? We don't usually talk about sea monsters and dragons, okay? It seems like a medieval dragon. I mean, an animal that flashes forth lightning and flaming torches and light from their eyes and nostrils. But guys, look over at 4134. Always read in context. 34. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Folks, who is the king over the kingdom of darkness 
that includes all those who are prideful in rebellion against God? Satan. This is a statement of the prince of this world in symbolic fashion. He is king over all the sons of pride. Could it be that this Leviathan is simply ancient Near East poetic language describing the one who New Testament authors name as the prince of the power of the air, the king and God of this world, Satan himself? God is saying to Job, Job, you have no idea what you're wrestling with. You have no idea the warfare that happens between the cosmic forces of good, Yahweh himself, and those who give their allegiance to him, and evil, the accuser, and those that give their allegiance to him. Dr. Greg Boyd points out this in his book, God at War. Um, And just to be clear, Dr. Greg Boyd is what's called an open theist, and I do not agree with all of his theology, but this is a wonderful book if you want to grasp this idea of God at war. He says this, he says, It is just possible that the intensely materialistic and rationalistic orientation of the Enlightenment has blinded us to certain otherwise obvious realities. It is just possible that our chronocentrism, or our tendency to assume that the worldview we hold at the present time is the ultimate, ultimately true worldview, is preventing us from seeing significant features of reality. You see, church, God is ultimately sovereign, but my question is, is that sovereignty as straightforward as we think it is? I think biblically we have to see it more in terms of warfare than we do of a nice, clean, meticulous providence where God orders each and every molecule in the universe. The full biblical account seems to teach us that there is something else going on. And I am honest enough to say as your pastor, I don't have a full grasp of how it all works. What I do know is that I cannot stand in the camp that says God is totally like humanity and doesn't know the future and doesn't have control. I can't back that. That's not biblical. But I also cannot stand in the camp that says that God is meticulously ordering every single action of mankind and he is the source behind evil in the world. Where I can stand biblically is to say that we worship a God who is larger and stronger and higher than any of us or anything we can comprehend. And I can also say unequivocally, that he stands on the side of the oppressed and the vulnerable, and that he is at war against the kingdom of darkness and all of its injustices. God is at war with the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And therefore, because God is at war with those powers, church, so are we. And so Paul can state clearly in Ephesians, can state clearly, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, do you have the background of why Paul wrote that? Church, do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that right now, as we sit here today, There is cosmic warfare being waged between the one true God and those rebellious spiritual powers that desire to remove him from the throne. If we can actually grasp this background, then Paul's commands in our text from Ephesians now make sense. Why don't you turn back there with me to Ephesians 6. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so our first command today, we've got two of them, is this. Write this down. Church, stand firm in the Lord and in his victory. Church, stand firm in the Lord and his victory. Using this worldview of God at war will assist us to piece together the gospel more so now than ever before. We will look at this in more detail when we look at what the armor is that Paul is mentioning as he breaks it down piece by piece. But for now, let's just understand that the the idea of this armor is taken from the Old Testament. You'll get more of this when we get there to the next section. But for right now, I want you just to understand that he is pulling from Isaiah. I'll read this to you, or you can turn there with me if you'd like, but this is from Isaiah 59. I'll just read from verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Yahweh saw it, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. 
he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm, speaking of Christ, the Messiah, brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. In the mind of God's people, They were looking for a warrior to defeat their physical earthly enemies because of prophecies like this. They'd become so focused on their present life that they missed the greater spiritual realities in the background. And this is why when Jesus came as their Messiah church, as the arm of God bringing salvation, what did they do? They balked. They said, there's no way that you, the carpenter's son, can fight off the Romans. You're not strong enough. You can't even put on this kind of armor you're not the Messiah. What they did not understand is that he first needed to destroy the strongholds of spiritual power, as well as the serpent, the Leviathan, Satan himself, and the kingdom of darkness, so that then he could come and restore his kingdom physically. Why did he need to do this? Because church, if you don't follow Jesus Christ as your king, as your savior and Lord, you are ensnared by the leader of the kingdom of darkness. Look at what 1 John 5.19 says. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world. Who's that talking about? Satan. Satan is the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice the two kingdoms there? Guys, the gospel is certainly not less than Jesus saved you from your sins, but it's definitely more that he has saved you from the kingdom of darkness. He has brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. Jesus, all of his disciples, And the apostolic writers all understood that Jesus had come to destroy the devil and his works and to free the world from the control he now has over it. And so Jesus' primary mission was to destroy the power of the kingdom of darkness over mankind. Jesus came to redeem his people from the realm of darkness and set them free for his kingdom. Guys, look at these scriptures. How else do you describe this in these scriptures? Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Without a warfare mentality, these, they don't really make the same sense. Look at Colossians 2, 13 through 15. This is Paul's writing. And you who were dead in your trespasses your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We usually stop there and go, sweet, God forgave me for my sins. Certainly not less than that, but look at the rest. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and in so doing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is not talking about the Romans. This is talking about the spiritual powers. Church, if we minimize the gospel to be only that Jesus came to pay for my sins, we may technically get the gospel partially correct. But we also miss the amazing apocalyptic truth that Jesus did far more than that. Jesus died for us and rose three days later to show victory over the power of evil, and specifically the evil one. Not just in our own lives, but over the entire world. And so the gospel does not just become a warm security blanket for me to wrap myself in each Sunday to remind me that I'm going to heaven when I die. It becomes a rally cry, a war cry to partner with Christ and take the battle to the enemy, to fight him at every chance in our own minds, in our own hearts, 
in our families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, and in our surrounding community and world. We take the fight to him. Again, from Dr. Boyd, he says this. He says, I do suggest that biblical authors generally understood all evil in the context of spiritual war. For biblical authors to wage a war against such things as injustice, oppression, greed, and apathy toward the needy was to participate directly or indirectly in a cosmic war that had engulfed the earth. Church, we must recognize that we are God's army of redeemed saints with our brothers and sisters around the world. We are sent on his behalf to conquer in his name because he has paved the way through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, and through his ascension and enthronement in heaven. And this was not just the background of the Bible, but also the entire point of the book of Ephesians, that we have been raised as a redeemed community built up in the image of the victorious king so that we might walk forward as his incarnate body in our local surroundings to wage war on behalf of his kingdom to preach the gospel with our actions and then back it up with our explanations of the truth. Guys, look with me again at Ephesians. If you're there, you can just stay there, but look at the book and see what it is that happens. Go back with me to 116. 116. Look at Paul's prayer for the saints of Ephesus. In 116, he starts this prayer. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the workings of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Great. Stop there, right? No, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see, church, how we're missing out when we blind ourselves to only the Savior piece of the gospel and we miss the King piece? We blind ourselves. We only see half of who God is. Then look at his reminder to the saints. Who were we? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of of mankind. We have to recognize, guys, that if you do not have allegiance to Jesus, you are under the authority of the evil one. Either that is true or the Bible is a rag and we need to throw it away. But now we've become part of his kingdom under his reign, and so we, the redeemed community of Christ, in this local expression of the worldwide church, what do we do? Look at chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We make known to all the spiritual realm that rebelled against Yahweh that they are defeated. You declare that by sitting your rear ends in that seat today. Kind of changes your view of what church is all about, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't really know if I'm all about going and proclaiming victory over the powers of evil. I just doesn't, I, you know, I'd really like to sleep in today. No, guys, this is what you do. I remember going to Notre Dame, guys. The best thing was the pep rallies. And I was an athlete. But there was nothing like walking into the, the Joy Center and sitting in the stands and having the drum majors start the drum in the tunnel and everybody come out. And what were we doing? We were going, let's go kill Michigan. Ah! Right, you know? And that's about a stinking pigskin and nobody would miss those pep rallies. We'd be bulging at the seams. Every Sunday is a pep rally. Every Sunday is coming and saying, bring it, Satan. You're defeated. You were defeated on the cross. And this group tells you that you have no future. Christ is Lord, and he reigns. That's what we declare with the church. We make known to the spiritual realm every Sunday that we gather that they are defeated. 
And then he prays again in chapter 3 that the saints would be strengthened. Why? So that they can build up the body. You remember chapter 4, that we are given to the the, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are given to what? Equip the saints. For what? Building up the body. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so Paul is giving this picture of the church made up as a body of many members becoming this warrior standing in the place of the incarnate Christ who already won on the cross but now sends us out into the battle. And in the midst of that body, Satan is trying to gain a base of operations by dividing the body. Look at verse 27. This is where he tells us to deal with sin. And he says in verse 27 of chapter 4, and give no opportunity to the devil. And so we individually and corporately go out together as this body to put on the battle armor of God. You can imagine the church as the body placing the armor on itself every day, proclaiming our allegiance to Christ through our obedience to his divine order. And we build one another up so that as one body of Christ, we can truly don the battle armor of the gospel and go to war against the kingdom of darkness. And so Paul then, twice in our small text from Ephesians today, he gives us a command, a second command. You can write this down. He says to us, church, put God's armor on and go to war. Put God's armor on and go to war. Because we can now fully understand Paul's background and thought process, this command is no longer a nice little picture of kids holding hands, walking around in a circle singing, I'm in the Lord's army. Man, we have minimized this section so badly. We picture veggie tales putting on their armor and going out to battle, right? Now, those things aren't terrible. But I want to teach my children not that they're in the Lord's army, yay, but you're in the Lord's army. Put the battle gear on and go to war every day. This is the reality of our lives. We are to put on our armor every day and prepare for battle. The apostles saw the work of Jesus in their own work, being about the kingdom of God defeating the kingdom of Satan. First demonstrate that reality of the kingdom, and then interpret that demonstration for those that are watching. And if we live like this, the word is clear that we can expect a fight. If we act in obedience to Jesus Christ, Satan will want to get a foothold in this body and in your life. He has tried over the last seven years. This is why Paul tells us that we must withstand and stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Satan will respond to the kingdom in violence and divisive attack. And you have to ask the question, whose side am I on? The good news of the gospel of the kingdom is that we have nothing to fear in the midst of this battle. If you've started to sit there today and think, man, this is kind of overwhelming. Recognize, guys, we're not working towards full victory. We're working from full full, full victory. I've shared with you before that my grandfather was one of the youngest lieutenant, lieutenant colonels in the army in World War II. His entire job was to go in and rout concentration camps. The battle had already been won, but many of the Nazi soldiers didn't know they were licked, and so he had to go in and show them that they were licked. That is our job. That is our job. And so we have nothing to fear because Jesus has already won the battle. Look at what he says to the church at Thyatira in the book of Revelation. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Many of you know that that is a statement about Jesus himself from Isaiah. But he gives us that same power because we walk with him. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How could they hold fast and conquer? Because church, Jesus has already secured victory for us. We simply await for him to come riding on that white horse with his truth coming out of his mouth, destroying anything that stands against it. And in the midst, we fight 
We fight against the kingdom of darkness as they take one last final gasp of breath, knowing that they are defeated. And so this morning, I want to close with some practical ways that we wage warfare. And then I'm going to leave the rest for when we cover the actual description of the armor. First, I want you to write this down. We wage warfare through prayer. First, we wage warfare through prayer. One of the primary weapons we have in this battle is prayer. When we think of prayer as asking God like a genie in a bottle for things we want, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense that we pray that often because the Bible says he knows what we want before we ask. You ever think about that? If that's the primary reason for prayer, then that's a pretty lame, inefficient reason because he already knows. That doesn't mean we don't do it because we go to him as children to a father. But I would add to that view of prayer, this view, that prayer is a weapon against the powers of darkness. And when you view it that way, it becomes a whole lot more vital and powerful. Take a look at the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's an authority statement. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven? See those two realities? See the spiritual warfare there? Give us this day our daily bread. There's the, I, what I need. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's the act of justice playing out God's kingdom in our lives. But notice this last part. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you have an NIV, that says the evil one. The actual translation is the evil one, not just evil. In the Greek... There is a definite article before that statement of evil, and it takes the place of a name. Jesus taught us to pray with warfare in mind. The battle between two kingdoms is real, and we see it here. And so we need to pray against the schemes of Satan in our own lives. We need to pray against the schemes of Satan in the lives of our brothers and sisters here and abroad. And we need to pray against Satan's schemes within this body. Guys, when we pray for Pastor Pierre, who still is uh, in the hands of his captives in Burkina Faso, we're not just praying, Lord, free him. We're praying, destroy the works of the devil that want to kill him. When we're praying for the people in this group through the member directory that you have, and you're praying for the names and faces of the people that you have devoted yourself to and committed yourself to, pray that Satan has no room in their life. Pray that the Lord would protect them and guide them and keep them away from the schemes of the devil. We must pray to fight against the enemy. I ask you, if there was an enemy in front of you that was about to attack your church family or your family and you had a bullet, would you put it in the gun and use it? Prayer is your ammunition. Do we think of it that way? Do we use it? Secondly, in order to wage warfare, we need to obey. This includes fighting temptation in order to obey the will of the Father, just as Jesus did in the wilderness, as we heard in our reading earlier from Paul. Obedience in and of itself does harm to the cause of the kingdom of darkness. He wants chaos. You step into obedient order. You are fighting against Satan. Obey God's will in everything, which requires you to read your word and understand it and apply it. Satan detests obedience to Christ. Wage warfare in your obedience. Third, not only praying and obedience, but we need to bring the kingdom of God to bear in every situation. Everything that's presented to us by practicing righteousness and justice in our relationships, in our families and church. As we, as, as the church, take on topics of slavery, which we'll do next week. Homelessness. Raising our brothers and sisters across the world out of poverty. Whenever we see someone oppressed in our society, we enter in to take the warfare to the enemy. When we care for the vulnerable in our community through foster care and caring for the DHS employees, these are acts of violence against the kingdom of darkness. Again, from Dr. Boyd, what the kingdom of God means, therefore, is that the hostile alien kingdom of demonic activity, oppression, poverty, and blindness is coming to an end through the ministry of Jesus. He is the bringer of the kingdom of God, for he is the vanquisher of the kingdom of Satan. And so we, church, need to follow in his footsteps. And lastly, 
not only prayer and obedience and acts of righteousness and justice. But lastly, when asked why we are like this, be ready to proclaim that the kingdom of light is and will be victorious over the kingdom of darkness. Be ready to tell them the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus has died for their sins, that he paid the price for their sins on the cross of Calvary, but that three days later he rose victorious over all the enemy powers. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven and is enthroned today as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is coming to judge the quick and the dead. Will you be part of that kingdom? If you're not a follower of Jesus, today is the day for you to say, I give my allegiance to Christ. And if you want to do that, I'll be in the back during worship time, and I would love to pray with you and talk to you about what that means. Church, I want us to remember as we wake up every day this week, that you are not just waiting for the kingdom. You are engaged in the battle declaring that it is coming in its fullness. You are fighting with the very armor of Yahweh himself against the kingdom of darkness. Church, you are the incarnate body of Christ, clothed in the armor of the redeeming Messiah. And this week, I call us to stand firm in the Lord and in his victory. So let's put on Christ's armor that he used to defeat the enemy in the wilderness and at the cross of Calvary. And let's engage the enemy with the power of Christ himself by the Holy Spirit.